So Judges 16, uh, verses 15 through 22. And I'll read that in just a moment. But, you know, that, so we're, we're beginning a, a new year. And I, I was praying about possibly like a, a message series. And I really didn't get a series of messages. I just got one message. And so I was going to go with that. I, I try my best to be sensitive to what I believe the Lord is saying. Even though I believe in preparation, I want him to be able to give me anything he needs to give me at, at that given time. And this is, this is the only thing that he had given me. And he was speaking to me about this, about this story about a guy in the Bible named Samson. And it's really sort of a depressing story, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I like the story. I, I like a lot of what it has to say, but it, it can be a difficult story to read. And I want to say this before I get into preaching it, is, is, that, is that as I say it, it's going to be challenging for all of us. But it was, it's been challenging for me more so than it will maybe even be, be for you because I, I feel like the Lord was speaking this to me on a personal level before he gave it to me. <laughs> to speak to you. So, so I'm speaking from something that I believe God was even saying to me and trying to expose in my own heart and, and, and beginning to deal, deal with me about some things. So I want to put that first. But secondly, I want, to, I want us to know and understand that this is, we're talking about vision. Sunday night we had a service here. We baptized about 10 folks. And, and the theme that God sort of gave us then was, was we started to discuss vision. We started to talk about what God has as a vision for our life and how important it, it is to have vision. That the Bible says that where there is no vision, the people are unrestrained. We live unrestrained lives when we don't have a vision of God and we don't have a vision for what He wants to do in our lives. And, and that comes from an encounter with God. It comes from intimacy with Jesus and it comes through a Spirit-led life. And we, we personally believe in this church, and I think you, you would agree with me, one of the things that we believe is we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we actually believe that, that if you do not have the power of the Holy Spirit active in your life, then everything is really just, it's all vain. It has no power, it has no worth, it has no value. That the Christian life is a life designed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to accomplish God's purposes and God's will. Amen? So, so, so I want to talk a little bit about that. And what I want to specifically talk about, the title of this message is going to be The Secret to Spiritual Strength. The secret to spiritual strength. So let's read several verses together and let's pray and we'll get into it. It's uh, uh, Judges chapter 16 beginning at verse uh, 15 and I'll read through verse 22. It says, Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So he told her everything. No razor ever has been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word to the rulers of the Philistines, "'Come back once more. He has told me everything.' So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands, and after putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair, and so began to subdue him. And his strength left him. And then she called Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes and took him down to Gaza, binding him with bronze shackles. They set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And sometimes we read stories in the Bible, God, that, that are just, they're, they're different. Sometimes we might even say they're strange, Lord, but the truth is, is that everything that was written in your word, God, is profitable. And Lord, we believe that there's something here that you're trying to speak to us through this message. And so, Holy Spirit, you're the only one that can bring light to this. You're the only one that can bring illumination. So I pray, God, that you'd take these words, that you would speak to our heart, that you would give us revelation of what you want to do in our lives, and you'd cause us to begin to see more clearly than we ever have about what your purpose is for our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So you read this story. We just read the, the, it, the, sort of the end of, of Samson's uh, kind of encounter with a woman named Delilah. And, and what you find out is that at the end, she lays him down to sleep in her lap. 
and he goes to sleep in her lap, and they come in, and they shave the seven braids of hair that he has. He's got seven dreadlocks, and, he, and, and they shave those off of his head, and after they shave those off of his head, his strength leaves him, and you're thinking, man, this is just a weird story. This doesn't even make a whole lot of sense, but you begin to see what, what happens here because they end up gouging out his eyes. They take away his vision. And ultimately, what you've got to understand is that as a Christian, what Satan is after more than anything is he is after your vision. He's after your ability to see clearly Jesus Christ in your life and even more importantly, what God has called you to. He was after Samson's vision. He's after your vision. And then he bound them and he, he, they bound him in bronze shackles and they set him to grinding in the prison house. Now, in order to grind what you would have to do at that point, there, he's in a prison at this point and grinding means you push this little thing around and you do it in circles continuing to grind the grain and ultimately Satan's goal for each Christian believer is that he would rob you of any spiritual vision that you would have and you would just slowly begin to be shackled by different things of this world until all of a sudden without even realizing it you're grinding in a prison house slowly turning in circles never moving anywhere just profitless labor year after year after year after year amen This is what Satan wants for our life, but God does not want this for our life. And this is the reason this story is in Scripture. It's to give us an idea of of, of something, of a point that God is trying to make concerning our lives and the call that he has on our lives. Now, let me give you a little bit of background for Samson. Samson lived in the time of the judges. It's a book when, when there, there really weren't any, there, there, there were prophets, but no well-known prophets. But at this time, uh, Israel was kind of like in this intermediary state. God had called them into the promised land, but they weren't willing to fight the battles that they had to fight to get into the promised land. And so they found themselves in this intermediary state, and all of the people around them that they're living with worship other gods, and oftentimes, rather than worshiping their God, Yahweh, they would begin to worship these other gods, and because of that, they would be enslaved by those other nations around them. And in this case, they're being enslaved specifically by the Philistines because they had rebelled against God. And each time, they would cry out because they're enslaved. It's a cycle of even human behavior. What we, what we literally do oftentimes is we, we're, we turn against God, we rebel against God, we go in a totally different direction uh, than God is wanting us to have for our lives. We find ourselves enslaved by things we don't want to be enslaved by, and then all of a sudden in our despair we cry out, and what does God do? He brings deliverance because He's merciful and because He loves us. And this cycle happens repeatedly over and over and over again. And at this point, they've been 40 years in bondage to the Philistines, and God sends a prophet to a woman, which would end up being Samson's mother, and he says to her, listen, you're going to have a son, and he's going to begin to bring deliverance to the people of Israel. He's called to bring deliverance to God's people. And here's what the angel says to her. Now, the angel says to her, he says, says, listen, now you're going to have this baby. You need to be careful to make sure that you don't drink any fermented drink or any strong drink or anything like this because what's going to happen is this boy is going to be a Nazarite separated unto God from his mother's womb. And, and, And a Nazarite is a very specific thing, okay? A Nazarite is a vow of separation to the Lord. Now, if you, put, if you put up that definition for Nazarite, and it's in your notes, but the word Nazarite comes from two root words, and you combine those words, and here's what it means. It means to be set apart, to be purified, to be made, made to reflect the glory of God, raised above the norm, and given authority over the nation. In other words, if you read even throughout the book of Judges and throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, when God intends to do something powerful in dark situations and circumstances, He actually calls a person to set themselves apart to God's purposes. This means that they're going to live differently than everybody else. John the Baptist was a Nazarite, and you remember, he went out into the wilderness. He ate wild locusts and honey. He wouldn't even eat normal food, and he spent most of his time fasting, and he wore camel skins, right? He was living a different life. Why? Because he was a Nazarite, separated unto God from his mother's womb. And in order to be separated and to fulfill the purposes that God had for him, he had to understand that I was, he was being called apart, that he couldn't be just like everybody else. That there was something different about him that he had to be willing to sacrifice in order to fulfill God's purpose for his life. Because if he was going to be like everybody else, he would begin to lose his vision. He would begin to not hear the voice of God and the calling of God that was upon his life. And his senses would be dulled to this truth. 
Now, if you read in Numbers uh, chapter 6, it talks about the Nazarite vow. And there's, there's three specific things that the Nazarite vow has. And, and, and the first thing is, just like we said, he, he was not only, he was not to drink any wine or fermented drink, but it, it went even further than that. He was not to drink, he was not to even eat grapes or eat raisins. You say, well, that's a little bit, that's a little bit hardcore, that's a little bit legalistic. And, and, and in today's world, obviously, we, we think about things differently. Now, we know that the scripture in Ephesians 5.18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation or excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, the truth here is that we are not to be intoxicated with anything other than God's Spirit. Amen? We're not to be intoxicated with anything other than the Spirit of God. Now, when we talk about this, because for, for is, Israelites, it was not a sin to drink wine. Drunkenness was the sin, and wine or grapes or juice or raisins for them was a delicacy. It was a gift from God, something that they, they would celebrate with. And it wasn't that it was, it, it was a sin. It was just that there were some pleasures in this life that they had to be separate from in order to, in order to, in order to seek God, to know God, and to hear what God had upon their life. There was a special separation. Now, I want you to understand something. A lot of y'all, you're going to feel good at this point because you're like, you know what, I don't, I don't drink alcohol, so everything's good, everything's great. And you know what, you may not get intoxicated with drugs or alcohol, but I want you to understand that in the world we live in today, we get intoxicated with all sorts of things. TV, social media, Netflix, I mean, we, our phones will intoxicate us with the things of this world until all of a sudden we don't even realize it, but we are addicted to things that are ultimately robbing us of our devotion to God. You say, well, Clay, how can I know that I'm being intoxicated by the world? Let me tell you, you can know you are intoxicated by the world system when there is no desire, there is no passion for a devotion to God. When you have no more prayer life, when you have no more desire to be alone with God, to be in His Word, to, to, to have prayer, to have devotion to God, you have become so intoxicated with the things of this world that now you no longer have a desire to be filled with the Spirit. I know that's already a hard word, right? It, but, but, but at the same time, it's such a, an important word for us to hear as Christians because what we begin to believe is that, is that we want to we see how much we can get away with as Christians and still be Christians rather than how deep can we go in God. And that's, I don't know what, what it is about our culture, but e even today in our culture, anytime you begin to preach anything that seems the slightest bit legalistic, everybody freaks out. And look, I'm against legalism. Legalism is demonic. But at the same time, I'm against lawlessness. Because we can't just live our lives with no restraints, with no guidelines, with no order, with no structure, just saying, well, I'm a Christian, but never living a life of any devotion and purpose that Jesus Christ has called us to. It's essential that we begin to live that. So the second thing he says, he says, look, you can't, you can't drink any, uh, you know, I, I got listed on here people getting, because uh, if you think about it, we get intoxicated with politics. You can watch Fox News or CNN, anything, you get intoxicated with that junk. You get intoxicated with sports. I love sports. I love to watch sports. But they can intoxicate you to the point that you're no longer even thinking about Jesus. Anybody amen me on this this morning? All right. Praise the Lord. It can get you. And then so secondly, the second thing was no razor shall come upon his head, they said. There shall be no razor uh, that shall come upon his head. And if you look throughout Scripture in the Old Testament, you know that a lot of times there were places where the warriors that would fight out on the front lines, it would talk about them, and it literally calls them in certain places the long-haired ones. We got one Nazarite in here. Where's he? There he is right there. He's the long-haired one. Amen. And they would send them out first in battle. Why? Because they knew the long-haired dudes had been separated to God. Amen? It was a sign of their vow. It was an outward symbol of their vow saying, I'm separated to God. And that means that my life is open to scrutiny. You can hold me accountable because as long as my hair is long, you shouldn't see me touching anything unclean. You shouldn't see me over there in this position. You should see me living a life that is separate and, and, and I'm letting my hair grow out as a symbol of my vow. So whenever they would get in battle, they'd send the long-haired ones out first. So let them boys go first. Them guys are separated. Them guys know what's going on. They're going to have a power that we don't have. That's what they knew. They knew these guys have tapped into something that we've not tapped into. And there's an anointing. There's something on their life. There's a power. There's a strength that we don't yet have because we know that they're separated under the Lord. 
See, and like I said, it's not how much I can get away with and still be a Christian, but how far can I go in giving my whole life to God? And the last thing that, that was a part of the Nazarite vow was, they said, and again, you can read this in Numbers chapter 6, but you were to not go near a dead body. It even goes as far as to say, like, if you're in a Nazarite vow and your mother, or your father, your brother, or sister dies, you can't touch a dead body. You can't go near it. Matter of fact, if, if, if somebody dies in your presence, you've got to get out of there and you've got to go to the temple and, and, and you've got to do like a seven-day cleansing ritual to maintain your Nazarite vow. And obviously, that's, that's not, that's not a, 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 a real part, but it symbolizes the fact that in our day, we are not to allow death, things that we know are going to bring death into our home, into our hearts, into our minds, into our life. If it's going to bring death in there, I have to distance myself from that. And you say, well, give me something practical, Clay. Give me something practical. There are some times when, when my, me and my wife, we will be watching Netflix and we come across a show and there's death in it. And I'm not talking about people dying. I'm talking about something that is spiritually contaminating me and bringing death into me. Now, I don't have to be super legalistic and get all huffy and say, well, I can't believe you people watch that. It's not about that. It's about my heart. It's not about me judging you. I'm not judging you. It's about my heart, my condition. And I know that if I'm going to be able to get up here on Sunday morning and have a word from God, I've got to keep myself pure. I've got to keep myself clean. I've got to keep myself from being contaminated by things that will not allow the power of God and the Holy Spirit to flow through me to speak to your heart. Okay? And, and, and you say, well, Clay, this does sound a little bit legalistic. I'm telling you, it is a truth. Anybody who has ever been anointed by the Spirit of God and experienced God using them in supernatural ways, they know, as sure as I'm standing here, that as soon as they lose a little bit of devotion to God, as soon as their prayer life begins to back up, as soon as they've been out of the Word just for a while, they lose their edge. You know how I know? Because I've done it. I've been there. I've lost my edge from being lazy. I've lost my edge from just compromising a little bit here and there. Not a big deal. Not anything that you would just say, well, Clay's in blatant sin. It's not blatant sin. It's just a little compromise here and there. Just a little bit of relaxing here and there. Just a little bit of laziness here and there. And then all of a sudden, these things begin to come in. But let me tell you what a Nazarite is. And this is in your notes. A Nazarite was a holy lover of God who denied themselves the legitimate pleasures of this life in order to experience more fully the supreme pleasures of knowing God. All of the things that they called a Nazarite not to do, those things were not necessarily sinful in themselves. Like I said, there were legitimate ple- Eating grapes and eating raisins was a legitimate pleasure. But they were willing to set aside legitimate pleasures of this life so that they could come into an encounter and experience the greater pleasures of knowing God. And sometimes I need you to understand this. This is what fasting is about. Man, it is an enjoyable thing to eat food, isn't it? Praise the Lord. Anybody amen me? Right? It's an enjoyable thing. Like we love to eat food. And guess what? It is a gift from God. God gave us food so that we could even cook it in such a way that when we sat down around a meal, man, there's fellowship going on. There's something beautiful that's going on. It is a gift from God. It is a legitimate pleasure from God. But guess what? Sometimes we set aside those legitimate pleasures. Why? To grow nearer to God. And in your life, if you're going to stay close to God and be filled with the Holy Spirit, it is, you have to understand that it is a lifestyle of sometimes having to set aside legitimate pleasures, things that can be good, things that can be enjoyable, but saying no to them so that nothing comes between you and God and nothing distracts you from your devotion to Him. This is what it means to be a Nazarite. This is what Samson was. And Samson, his name literally means like the sun. And it's a picture of the church because, because the church is called to be the light of the world. I don't know if you knew it or not, but the light we got in this world is the sun, is it not? It's the light of the world. So, so he is a picture of the church. He is, he is like the sun is his name. And if you begin to read his story, it's about four chapters long, Judges 13 unto 17. And in the beginning it says when he was a young man, he, the Lord blessed him and he grew. And all of a sudden, because he was separated to the Lord, guess what happened? It says in chapter 13, verse 24 and 25, that all of a sudden the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times. Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times. Now, let me, t- let, me, let me share this with you, and I hope that you can understand it. But if you choose as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, 
to sit down and say, God, I'm going to begin to separate some stuff to you. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you my life in this area. I'm going to begin to pray. I'm going to begin to fast. I'm going to get in the scripture and I want you to use me. I want you to use me for your purposes. If that begins to be your heart cry, I promise you that you will be in public. You will be in your home. There will be moments when all of a sudden you begin to sense the inner life of the Holy Spirit compelling you to do something that you wouldn't have done before. He'll begin to move you at times. Now, what's he, say, what's he saying? He, what, what happens is, is you, when you begin to, any person who begins to set their life apart to the Lord, they begin to encounter the Holy Spirit in such a way where he is bringing them through a training process. Somebody amen me. This is good right here. Because what happens is most people, here's what a lot of people will do, and some people are even in this situation right now. Some of you, you've separated your life to God for a season. The Spirit of the Lord moved you for a season, but maybe you didn't like how the Spirit of the Lord moved you. Amen. Maybe he wanted you to talk to somebody you didn't want to talk to. Maybe he asked you to do something that was a little bit too difficult. Maybe you were a little bit too fearful and you drew back. And because he was asking you to do something more radical than what you would have enjoyed doing, you drew back. Your separation to the Lord drew back. And guess what happened? Well, the Spirit of the Lord just sort of... It's not that he's not there with you anymore. In the New Testament, New Covenant, we know that the Spirit of the Lord that that lives on the inside of us, he'll, He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. But that doesn't mean that He has to use us every single day. See, He wants a person that is separated that gets up in the morning and says, Lord, my life is for you today. How you move me is where I will go. What you speak to me is what I will say. That's the life that I want to live. But see, we put that on the back burner and we actually come to church sometimes hoping that God doesn't move us to do anything because we're in the building just to, to allow somebody else to move. Clay will take care of that, boy. You know what I'm saying? Praise God. Let me tell you something. A church does not function, the body of Christ does not function until every believer is being moved upon by the Holy Spirit. Moved upon. You got a calling. You have a gifting. There's something that God wants to do in you and through you that you cannot allow the enemy to steal from you. Cannot allow it. I'm telling you, when we we allow the Holy Spirit to flow through us in that way, we begin to see miracles happen. We begin to see things happen. See, Jesus, Jesus was a Nazarite, but he was a different kind of a Nazarite, wasn't he? Because he touched dead bodies. Except when he touched dead bodies, they raised up from the dead. He was a different kind of a Nazarite than the way we look at it. And his life was completely separated to the Father. He said, not my will, but your will be done, Father. This was his heart. This is who he was. And you see Samson, the Spirit of the Lord began to move on him at times. In chapter 14, it says one time that a young lion came out against him. And the young lion roared against him. And it says says he just tore the lion. I imagine he grabbed it by the jaws and just tore it in half. You say, that's ridiculous. Can't nobody do that. The point is, it's a supernatural work. It's a supernatural power because Christianity is not a natural religion where you just try harder to be a better person. It is a supernatural religion. It's a supernatural relationship with God where he enables you by the power of the Spirit to be somebody you could not be on your own. That's what Christianity is. That's why it's called Christianity. Christ means the anointed one. You are a Christian. That means you are a little anointed one. One anointed with the Spirit to do something you could not do in your own strength or in your own ability. He tears the line. That means that we destroy the works of the devil. And then he goes on in chapter 15. And one time, he takes 300 foxes. This is weird stories in here. He takes 300 foxes, ties them tail to tail, sets a torch in their tails and releases these 300 foxes tied tail to tail into a field and he sets the field on fire. He said, well, what in the world is that a picture of? In the the Bible, foxes represent unregenerate man. Foxes represent people who are lost. In in Song of Solomon, it says, the little foxes spoil the vines. The little foxes spoil the vines. Jesus said to Herod, who was clearly not of God, Herod tried to have Jesus killed earlier, but he said, go tell that fox. He was talking to him. He was speaking about unregenerate man. Now see, so the church, what the church is called to do is we are called to call in unregenerate man and put the fire of God 
in unregenerate man and turn them loose back into the fields of harvest and set the fields on fire. And there is nothing that will set this community, your community, my community, our lives on fire more than when we realize that this church isn't just about us coming together on Sundays, but this church is about reaching unregenerate lost humanity and setting the fire of God in their hearts and turning them loose back into the fields to set those fields on fire. That's what he does. So he does that, and, and we're seeing supernatural feats take place. And in chapter 15, verse 15, it says one time that, that he comes upon a guy and he sees the jawbone of a donkey. Another weird thing, right? He picks up the jawbone of a donkey and he slays 1,000 of his enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, here's, here's the thing. He, he slays 1,000 of his enemies with the jawbone of a donkey. Now, the only thing I know of that you can really do with a jawbone, you can chew stuff right with the jawbone but ultimately what a jawbone does is when it moves guess what my jawbone's up here moving why because I'm making a declaration I'm speaking with my mouth I'm giving praise to God with my jawbone and when your jawbone moves you begin to slay the enemy you don't realize it but when you speak and you declare God's word you are breaking the power of Satan and his kingdom off of people's lives when you use your jawbone to declare the word of God when you lift up the, the, the highest praises of God together with us in this place you are breaking the chains of the enemy. And see, this is a picture of what the church is called to do. And all of these, all of these represent good things, but here's, here's what we end up finding out about Samson, is that when he did all these things, he did all of them for the wrong reasons. They were good things. Because you know we can do evangelism, we can praise God, we can sing songs, we can do everything right, but we can also do them for the wrong reasons sometimes. Amen? And we find out that he did these things for the wrong reasons. I want to give you three quick things. Um, that began to lead Samson to his downfall. And here's the first one. It's in your notes. Is that when Samson was doing these things and he was doing these supernatural acts, he was anointed by God to do great things. But when he did them, he did them with wrong motives often. And his first problem that led him to his downfall was that he was self-serving rather than God-serving. He was self-serving rather than God-serving. Now listen, he was accomplishing great exploits. You know that people can accomplish outwardly great things for God. It just looks like, man, they're doing amazing things. This is awesome what they're doing. And it, and it seemed like he was doing some great things. But the issue was, every time he went out and did some things, he did it because he was angry at somebody or he had a personal vendetta with the enemy that he wanted to get out. And he ultimately was not doing those things for God's purposes and for the deliverance of other people. Amen? I want you to understand something now. If, if, I'm, if I'm preaching the gospel, if I'm giving my life to Jesus to pastor a church or to go to a certain place and speak to other people and teach them the gospel, ultimately my motive cannot be that I'm doing it for any kind of selfish gain. It has to be for God's purposes, and His purpose is that ultimately people will be saved and be set free from their bondage and from their addiction and from the power of Satan. That's what I'm called to do. And I'm called to serve God in that capacity. And I can't do, those, do anything for self-serving reasons. But see, one time when he set the fields on fire, it, was a good, it represented something good. But he did it because he was mad at his father-in-law. My amen me on that, right? He, he always acted out of self-interest. Matter of fact, one time he killed 30 of the enemy, but it wasn't because he was trying to set some of his people free. He killed 30 of the enemy one time because he lost a bet. So, some, so his motives were a little bit messed up. And here's what you've got to understand, that our life is found when we learn to lay down our lives for others. Period. Our life in Christ is found when we learn to lay down our lives for others. And it's just like I said, sometimes I say, God, give me a vision for my life. Show me something amazing. What you got for my future? And he'll always take me back to something very small. And he'll, oftentimes when I ask him, God, show me a vision for my future, you know what he'll show me? He'll show me one individual. And say, will you give your time to that person? I'm like, Lord, I'm talking about something big, buddy. I mean, I'm, I'm dreaming bigger than you, God. I'm dreaming about something big here. I'm talking about vision, Lord. You know what I'm saying? And he's like, yeah, I'm talking about vision too, Clay. You, 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 you're not understanding it. Your vision can never be that big until it gets this small. It's about the one individual in front of you that needs the love of Jesus Christ right now. And every single person in this church, you've got one individual in front of you in your life that they need the love of Jesus Christ. They need the power of God in their life to be set free right now. And you are the vessel through which it is to flow. And he can't use me to flow through it to reach the people he's called you to reach. 
He's got you called into that position where you're going to reach those people. But we can't be self-serving. We have to be God-serving. Secondly is, he did not respect the gifts, calling, and purpose of God. Now, see, he was separated to God, and God just put an anointing on his life, man. And I'm, I'm going to tell you something right now. In this church, we have some highly anointed people, I believe, in a lot of different capacities. I think about people that I know are, are prayer warriors, people that, there, there are people that I can call sometimes, and, and they will give me, they'll say things sometimes that they don't even know God's speaking through them, you know? And we have people that are just, that, that, that God uses, and I believe they respect the gifts and calling, but let me, let me speak from my own perspective so it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm coming down on you, because I told you when I, about this message that the Lord was speaking it to me before he was speaking it to you. He, he didn't give, he did not give me this message to say, Clay, I want you to stand up and rebuke the people. You're doing well but they're doing terrible, okay? He didn't say that. He said, Clay, this is, this is for you, and I want you to share it because you all are walking together in this thing, right? We are. And, and it's easy, even though we have the gifts and the calling and the pers- purpose of God, to slowly just begin to not even respect it that much. God gives you a gift, God gives you a calling. Well, yeah, I appreciate that, Lord, appreciate that. But, you know, I got other things. I got other things I'm interested in right now. I've got other things I need to work with. I've got other things I need to deal with. And I appreciate the gift of God. But, you know, after he kills that line, which was a good thing because it was attacking him, he passes back through and there was honey in the line. Now, what do we know? According to his vow, he's not supposed to touch anything dead. What does he do? He said, man, there's some honey in that dead animal over there. Ain't nobody around. A little honey ain't going to hurt nobody. And sometimes that's how it is with us. We say a little honey is really not going to hurt anybody. A little honey here, a little honey there, nobody even knows. It's not that big of a deal. And, and I know I'm not supposed to touch anything dead, but it's not going to be that big of a deal. Just go get a little honey. Nobody will know. And you take a little bit of honey. This is all right. No big deal. But it's a small compromise. And all of a sudden, your separation to God is just a little bit more defiled than it was the day before. Because you, it wasn't that you necessarily sinned, but you broke a vow. You broke a vow of separation. You broke something in your heart, this agreement with God in your heart that you know, God, there's certain things that I'm just separated to and I'm not going to allow these certain things to come into my life. Another thing he did was he, he married a Philistine woman, which he was not supposed to marry. He wasn't supposed to link up. Now, that's a good, a good little practical tip in itself. You know, the Bible says not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to have relationships with unbelievers. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to reach unbelievers. It means that I'm not supposed to begin to walk in the same direction with an unbeliever because I make a relationship with them where they're leading me astray. That's why it's very difficult when somebody marries somebody who's an unbeliever. Not that, not that it can't be done. You can, you can be married to an unbeliever and, and God will sanctify that marriage and that person, but ultimately it is a very difficult thing because it's hard for two to walk together unless they are agreed. He married a Philistine woman. And, and the Bible even says, and, and by the time you get to chapter 16, he's going around and spending time with prostitutes. Now, here's what I want you to understand is that godliness and holiness is not just external behavior modification. In southeastern Kentucky, one of the big things, especially like in Pentecostal churches, one of the big things has always been that godliness and holiness has to do with externals has to do with whether or not your face, face, face is shaved or you're wearing the right clothing or anything like that. But it's never about that. Holiness and godliness is ultimately rooted at an internal respect for the things and the ways of God. That in my heart, I have a respect for the things and the ways of God. And guess what happens? If I really respect the ways and the things of God, it does come out, come out on the outside. Not in legalistic behavior, but in a purity and a holiness that people can look at your life and say, well, at least I can know this person, they love the Lord. This per- there's something different about this person. Let me give you the last one, and this is probably one of the best ones. Is number three, he lived with a sense of entitlement. Entitlement is, uh, is kind of a, like it's, just, it's running rampant right now in the world. Everybody thinks they're entitled to everything. Everybody thinks everybody should, everything should just be given to them. And see, his father told him, he, he said, listen, Samson, you don't need to marry a Philistine, man. That is not a good idea. He told him that in chapter 14. But Samson said, get her for me because she pleases me well. Get her for me. I always like, I always like Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. You all know Veruca Salt, you know what I'm talking about? She's like, I want it and I want it now, Daddy. And I mean, that's, that's the attitude of the world today. Get it for me now. I want it now. It pleases me now. Get it now. 
And he, and she, he, he felt entitled to it. For some reason, because of the, the calling of God on his life and who he was, he got in this position where he thought he could have anything he wanted whenever he wanted because it pleased him well. And it was always more about what he wanted than what God wanted for his life. Let me tell you what entitlement is. Entitlement is the belief that we inherently deserve privileges or special treatment. Now, let me just say it from my perspective so it doesn't hurt as bad. I could easily say, I could easily say things like, Lord, I've been serving you these years. I remained pure until marriage. I did all these things, and, 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 and I'm struggling with infertility. I, I, I could say things like, I could say things like, Lord, I'm, I, I've, been, I've, been, I've been working with you and, and, and doing everything that you've called me to do and, 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 and dealing, dealing with all the things that you've called me to do. I've done everything you've asked, and, 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 and I don't get no good money. Anybody amen me right here? Now, these are just things that can go on in any person's heart. You begin to believe, well, I deserve a better car. I deserve a better house. I deserve a better relationship. I deserve better people in my life. Let me tell you something. You don't deserve anything. You deserve punishment. That's the truth. I know nobody likes to hear that. But the truth is, is that we are sinners saved by grace. We don't deserve anything. I am not entitled to anything. God doesn't have to give me anything, but he loves me so much out of his grace and out of his mercy, he chooses to give me good things. But if he doesn't give me another thing, I've learned and I'm learning to be content with what he chooses to give me when he chooses to give it to me. And at the end, there's a parable that Jesus teaches. And he says, when you've done all that you're called to do, you come to the Lord at the end of that thing. And when you've done all that you're called to do, you say, Lord, I'm an unprofitable servant. Everything I've done... I've done by your grace, and I don't deserve anything. You don't have to give me anything, Lord. You've already given me everything. And let me tell you something, folks. We, we sit around as Christians, and we beg God for stuff, and we cry out to God for stuff. And let me tell you something. We already have everything we need in Him. And, I, and I want, here's something the Lord told me. He said, look, Clay, I know you want a lot of things. I know you'd like to see a lot of things happen in your life. But if you, if you, ha- if you keep that envy in there at the root that you're trying to act like it isn't even there, and you keep that thing down there in your heart, ultimately it's going to defile your ministry. And he said, I'm going to allow certain things, I'm going to allow you to want and desire certain things in your life, and you're going to believe throughout your life that if you don't have those things, somehow you're going to be unfulfilled. But he said, let it be a reminder every time that you want that thing that you think is somehow going to fulfill you, let it be a reminder that I'm the only thing that will ever fulfill you. He says, your heart is going to be restless. Augustine said, your heart will be restless until it finds rest in him. Entitlement, man, it will, it will destroy you because you think, you think you've earned something. You think you deserve something. You deserve more money. You deserve a better job. You deserve this. You deserve that. You don't deserve anything. Everything God's given you is by grace. You should be thankful for what you have because you already have far more than you deserve. Amen. And it will change your perspective on life because we can look around in the world. We get so self-focused and so self serving that we don't even realize that there are people around us that have nothing. They got nothing. We're going to go down here and serve at a homeless shelter this week. You know what they got? They don't even have a home. If they had children, they couldn't even take care of them. They got nothing. And you have to allow yourself to be brought into a position where you can take a different perspective on these things. And you can begin to say, Lord, I don't deserve anything. But what I can do is make sure that my life is separated to you and for your purposes. See, falling away from God, let me, let me say this. And some, some of you, now again, I'm trying my best to be like really not condemning. I really am. Like I'm trying to be jolly and everything. Let me, let's all smile for a minute. But some of us in, the, in this place right now, we are falling away from God. And it's a, it's a, it's a difficult thing like to say that. But some of us in this place right now, we are slowly but surely, we're falling away from God. I've been there. I've been, I've been falling away from God and been able to come up, man, as a pastor and, and, and different things and just be able to sort of, and no, nobody would ever think it. And I'm, not, and I'm not saying I'm doing things that are just ungodly sinful. I'm just saying that slowly your relationship with God is just starting to wane. You know, you don't have the same fire that you used to have. And it's easy done. This is why this story is in the Bible. That's why it's here. 
It's here for a purpose. It's here because you and I are human beings. And at the end of the day, we're just like Samson. We're called to do something amazing, but we get distracted. Because here's what, here's what you got to understand. It's rarely ever based on one event, but it's a culmination of a progressive slide. You just slowly, just, ah, a little bit here go, a little bit there go. And you enter into this progressive slide. And before long, what you, what you don't realize is that Satan is slowly slipping in and he is seeking every opportunity that he can to distract you, to deaden your spiritual senses, to steal your intimacy with God, and to blind you. And he understands that in order to hold our community in bondage, here's what Satan knows. Satan knows that, look, there's a group of people that they're going, every Sunday they're hearing the Word of God. They believe in Jesus. The, matter of fact, these people love the Lord. He knows that about you. He knows you love the Lord. And he hates it. So his only real opportunity, he understands, if those people ever actually find out who they are in God and the power of God that, is cap- that they're capable of, that's on the inside of them, that they could set this, tra- this community free. They could set the to- fox's tails ablaze and set the fields on fire and everything would turn around and all of the enemies would be defeated and you would see a county and a region absolutely change because they come to realize who they were. Satan knows this. He realizes it. He knows it. He says, man, if, because, because I'm telling you right now, if, if we all got on fire, you say, well, you know, we got a small church. That's good. God, if we were all on fire with the passion of God, man, you would, it would be like, you know, Sunday night, we, it was weird, I thought, because we had, we, had, we had like 250 people here. It was packed. We baptized 10. And the Lord said to me, you know what, Clay? If, it, if, it, if I had my desire, it would be like this all the time. If I had my desire, it would be like this all the time. I said, well, then do it, Lord. He said, I'm waiting on you. Y'all amen me on that? We're asking the Lord to do something that he's given us the authority to go ahead and handle. Do it, Lord. Well, where's your devotion? Where's your separation? Where's your prayer? Where's your intercession for those people that you actually want to see saved? It's a good word. He knows that we have that power and he knows that if we yield to what he's trying to do, though, we will become as weak as any other man. That's the whole issue is that there was a secret to Samson's spiritual strength. And he wants to bring us to a place where, listen, we're, we're saying the name of Jesus. We come to church every week, but what are we doing? We're blind. We have no vision for the future. And we're just going around in circles, grinding out grain. We're doing labor. We're doing some good stuff, but it's just not really ever getting anywhere. And ultimately, we don't have any vision for our future. We have no vision for what our life looks like in Christ. In Judges 16... Go back to the beginning, starting at verse 4. Verse 4 through 6, it says, Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him so that we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Now, Delilah, I want you to understand, she is a seducing spirit. The Bible says that in the last days, many shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits. She's a seducing spirit. This is not just an issue of adultery, because any time in the Scripture when you see adultery, it coincides with idolatry. To turn to something other than God is the same as spiritual adultery. And what you see Delilah is, Delilah is an enticing spirit trying to get you to commit a spiritual adultery. And Delilah, put her name up there. I got it up there. Put, the, put her name, the meaning of her name up. It's to slacken or be feeble, to be oppressed, to bring low, dry up, be emptied, be not equal, fail, be impoverished and be made thin. Isn't it crazy how in the Bible you got all these names and they actually mean something? Now her name means to literally slacken or be feeble. One, one place I read it actually can mean, it can mean to yawn or to take your ease. It, it just slowly means that you're just sort of slowly starting to just, ah, boy, I'm getting tired. I mean, that, that'd, be, you know, that'd be the practical like, illustration of it. You know, I'm, just sorry, I'm getting a little bit tired. That's really what it is. That's what her name means. It's this big yawn. And, and, and she's just trying to get you to, to slack and to be feeble just for a moment. And here's what it says. It says that Samson began to fall in love with her because you can be called into ministry and all of a sudden you begin to fall in love with the easy life. 
You ever fell in love with the easy life? I'm just trying to do as little as I can. I ain't trying to go to no prayer meeting. They asking me to sign up to fast. That's ridiculous. I want it easy. I won't have to seek God. I want God to give me what I want when I need it. Forget about having to seek God. Shouldn't we just be able to pray one prayer and the Lord just answer it? Why should we have to seek? Why should we have to do anything that, is, that, that, that causes us to release some kind of an energy? I know, amen me on this? You get to that place and, and we just slowly begin to, and it says, look, we'll give you, we'll give you 1,100 shekels. The number, for, the number 11 in Scripture, you know what it's the number of? It's the number of apostasy. Why? Because there were 12 apostles and Judas turned from Jesus and how many were left? 11. He said, I'll give you 1,100 shekels of silver. I mean, what is significant about 1,100? Who's going to give a... How, will you pay me? I'll give you $11. You know, like, who's going to give somebody $11? But it's the number of... Uh, it's a literal number of turning, slowly beginning to turn. Judas didn't turn from Jesus overnight. It didn't happen overnight. It was a slow little pull where, where Judas wanted something for himself. He had his, he had his own vision for his life. He, had, he, he wanted it. It was going to be easy. Judas was a man who was wanted, to, wanted Jesus to lead an uprising so they could overthrow Israel. And, and it, was a slow, it was a slow journey for him. But, but in verse 7 through 10, here's what you find out. Samson answered her and says, If anyone ties me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. And then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them. With men hidden in the room, she called to them, Samson, the Philistines are upon you, but he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his strength was not discovered. And Delilah said to Samson, You have made a fool of me. You lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. See, Samson begins to play a dangerous game. He starts to play with this spirit. He's just playing with it. He loves her. He loves it. He doesn't want to fully give it up, but at the same time, he doesn't want to give her up, but he, wouldn't, he doesn't want to give up his power either. And that's, that's a struggle for all of us. We want the power of God. We want to see God move, but we want some of this other stuff too. And it's a struggle for us. And he begins to play. He begins to dabble. He says, let me see how, much, how close I can get to Delilah before I actually have to give up my strength, before I actually have to give up my power that God is giving me to live the life that he's calling me. So he, said, he, he gives her a little lie. He tells her a lie. He says, look, you get seven fresh bowstrings, you tie me up, be as weak as any other man. Seven fresh bowstrings, that, that freshness, it has to do with new. And, and, and to me, it sort of represents a new battle or a new strategy of Satan that you've never experienced. Because how many of you, you, you just sometimes you experience this, this dread, this fear, this woe, that in the future, Satan's got something planned for you that you're not going to be able to overcome. And he does that. He brings fear and he says, look, in the future, this, you know what? If you ever get to that position, you ought to be afraid because there's something that's going to come against you, whether it's sickness or fear or worry or loss or pain or destruction. Something's going to come and you're not going to be able to overcome it. But let me tell you something. There is nothing that Jesus did not pay for on the cross. And Satan knows that ultimately there is no weapon that he forms against you, whether it's new or old, whatever weapon he forms against you, it cannot prosper. You always have the victory in Christ Jesus. There is no new battle, no new strategy that you will face that you will not overcome in Christ Jesus. And Solomon, uh, Samson knows that. So it goes on in verse 11 and he said, all right, I'll, I'll give you an answer. He said, if anyone ties me securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and tied him with them. Then with the men hidden, in the room, she called to them, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the ropes off his arms as if they were threads. Now, these ropes to me represent forms of bondage. And in my life, I used to have all sorts of forms of bondage, right? I was, we, we, we get addicted to things like drugs and alcohol. We get addicted to things like pornography. We get addicted to all sorts of different things. And maybe you've got your own sins of the past that bound you once and, and those ropes once tied you tight. But let me tell you something. With the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit, I can remember the day that God filled me with his spirit and those ropes that were on me broke just as if it was a thread. When we're filled with the spirit of God, those ropes cannot chain you. There is no more sin does not have the power or dominion over you any longer. Right? You are a new creation in Christ Jesus and that sin is now dead. You're now dead to that sin and all of those things have been broken. And then he goes on. 
In verse 13, it says, Then Delilah said to Samson, All this time you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. And he replied, If you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on the loom and tighten it with the pen, I'll become as weak as any other man. So while he was sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids of his head and wove them into the fabric and tightened it with a pen. So he says, look, if you take these seven locks on my head. Now I want you to understand something too. Seven is the number of rest. It's the number of completion and perfection. But in the Bible, the first mention of seven was what? On the seventh day he rested. God rested. It speaks of rest. And what God wants you to do in your life is he wants you to be able to minister and live and work from a place of rest in your mind. Now I want to ask you, are you at rest right now in your mind? Because for some of you, Satan has attacked you mentally and he's got you all discombobulated. You got fear in there, you got worry, you got anxiety. You're thinking about a million different scenarios. And the Lord is saying, look, I know you got difficulties. There's not one of you in this world that are not going to have difficulties. But here's the truth. You have to learn to take those thoughts captive and not allow Satan to steal your rest. You have to stay in rest. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. I will give you peace of mind, and I will keep you in perfect peace. My peace I leave with you. And Satan is after your rest. He says, if you take my seven locks and you begin to bind them up and you tie them up, you get in my mind, he says, I'll be just as weak as any other man. But guess what? Jesus has already made provision for that. Jesus says, no, you will not be just as weak as any other man because you will realize that you have the mind of Christ and that you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you know that I've given you rest and I've given you peace. And you take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And you can't be overcome in your mind. Samson knew that. So what did he do? He got up, he pulled the pen out. That didn't get me. And, and, and Satan cannot get you there Either So what does it finally come to? You read in verse 15 through 19, and we read these earlier, but she says, How can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you've made a fool of me and haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. And so he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I've been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. And if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as any other man. And when Delilah saw that he had told her everything, she sent word back to the rulers of the Philistines, come back once more, he's told me everything. So the rulers of the Philistines returned with the silver in their hands and putting him to sleep on her lap, she called for someone to shave off the seven braids of his hair. And so they began to subdue him. And listen, his strength left him. Then they called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke from his sleep. He said, I'll go out just as at other times, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Now, I want you to understand that in God, in the new covenant, thank the Lord. In the new covenant, the Lord has promised to never leave you nor forsake you. But you, what you have to understand is that there is a difference between the Holy Spirit living inside of you and the Holy Spirit resting upon you, empowering you to accomplish His purpose. There is a total difference. And what we have in the church is we've got about 99% of all Christians in America that they've got a Holy Spirit in them, but he rarely comes upon them to empower them to do the work that God's called them to do. Amen? You've got a Holy Spirit in you that is just enough to make you say, well, I probably should get up. I'm tired, but I should probably go to church this morning. I'm telling you it's time you've got to move way beyond that. It is time that you separate yourself unto God and say, God, it's not just about me showing up to church to hear a word. It's about me devoting my life to you, separating my life for your purposes and believing you for a supernatural anointing of the Holy Spirit to do something that you're calling me to do that I could not do otherwise. And see, this was what the answer was. He, she, she finally got him to give up the secret to his spiritual strength. And what was the secret to his spiritual strength? He said, if you shave my head, I'll be like any other man. That represented his vow of separation to God. See, when you and I forfeit our separation and our devotion to God for the purposes of bringing deliverance to those who are oppressed in our community and in our region and in our lives and around us, when we give up that separation and that calling, all of a sudden, the power of the Spirit just begins to to lift from us. We're not moved upon anymore. We don't sense God's heart anymore. We're not compelled anymore to reach the lost. And slowly what happens? We're just being put to sleep on Delilah's lap. Just slowly going to sleep. Just slowly yawning. Just slowly taking our ease and slipping into this position. But maybe the best verse in the scripture, and I want y'all to come to the music. They gouged out his eyes. They bound him 
with bronze shackles, it says. And bronze means judgment because here's, here's the thing that I did not want to happen with this message. And it could have, but I'm going to try to fix that here in these last few little moments if I can. But they bound him with bronze shackles because if you're like me, when you're not living how you should, and you know that, I don't have, I, most of the time you don't even have to tell people that. Most of the time, people will always say, I'm not praying like I should. I'm not, I'm, not doing, I'm not reading the Word like I should. Most people will say that. And the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you enter into such judgment and condemnation that it actually moves you further away from God than drawing you nearer. See, Samson had gotten to that point, and they bound him with bronze shackles, which meant that he was under shame. He was under condemnation. He was broken down. But in verse 22, I love what it says. It says, but the hair on his head begin to grow again after it had been shaved. See, what I want you to understand is that spiritually, this is a time where no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how many times you've failed, God's mercy endures forever. He still loves you. His gifts and His callings are without repentance, and He still desires to use you. He's never left you. He still wants to call you into the purpose that He has for you, and right now is a time where hair is beginning to grow again. Hair is beginning to grow again. God is calling you back into a vow of separation, so to speak. And that looks, you know what, that looks different for all of us. But we have to have a personal relationship with the Lord where the Holy Spirit is beginning to lead us to say, Clay, this is what I'm calling you to. This is what I'm calling you to. I need you to separate just some time to me. This is why we do things like prayer and fasting. We begin to enter back into that separation and His hair begin to grow again. I like what it says if you read the rest of the story. They take Samson in, and the Philistines are celebrating, and they're saying that their god Dagon had delivered. He's the fish god, and he had delivered. He had delivered Samson into their hands. He was their great enemy. And he comes in, and he's bound. He's bound by these chains, and they bring him out of the prison house, and they say, let's celebrate, and let's have him perform for us. And so Samson is down there blind just performing and, and the enemy is rejoicing over what's happened to him. And he speaks to this servant that had led him out. And it's a picture of the Holy Spirit. But he said, lead me to the pillars on which everything stands. See, when you call out to the Holy Spirit, you say, Holy Spirit, lead me to this place. Now, what, where was the Holy Spirit leading him to? He was leading him to his death. Because there's a place where you have to die to yourself. And what he does is he puts his hand up, up on the pillars. And there's 3,000 people standing on this thing. And he cries out to the Lord. And he says, Lord, one last time will you strengthen me one last time so that I can have, have this over my enemies and I can defeat my enemies. And the Lord hears his prayer. He strengthens him one last time. And he pushes out against the pillars. At that moment, it's a picture of the cross. Because the next verse says that in his death... He defeated more enemies than he did when he was alive. And I want you to understand that when Jesus died, he has saved far more people through his death than he did through his life. It's a picture of Christ. And I want you to understand that when we enter into that, the power of God for every single one of us comes through the cross. It comes through the fact that you first realize that Jesus died for your sins. He died to give you new life. But not only that, he's inviting you to the cross and he's saying, here's what you got to do. You want to experience my power? I need you to lay down your life the same way that I laid down mine. And that's where the power of God is located in our lives. Now let me give you five quick things and I'm done. Practical tips for letting your hair grow back out. Brian Jackson, take note. Wherever he's at. He shaved all his hair off. My wife cut hers down to here. This is going to be good for y'all. What I mean by letting your hair grow back out is I'm talking about dedication, devotion, separation to God. See, that's why I'm growing my beard out. God called me to the Nazarite man. Just kidding. But the first thing is being God's Word daily. I don't know where you're at in the Scripture, but man, if you're going to separate yourself unto God, Jesus said, John 17, 17, He said, Lord, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify means to be set apart. You cannot be set apart to God unless His word is in your heart changing you on a daily basis. Get you a physical Bible this year if you don't have one and fall in love with that thing. If you can't get a Bible, let me know. I'll buy you a Bible. I promise you. But get a physical Bible, fall in love with that thing, and read it as often as you can. And if you miss a day, 
Get over it and forgive yourself. Get up and read it the next day. Secondly, have a daily prayer time. Part of the reason Jesus was the Christ and he was the anointed one was because he had intimacy with the Father. That was the, the we say, well, you know, Jesus had this power and he had this anointing just because he was Christ. No, his anointing and his power, he revealed, it came through his relationship with his Father. And the power and the anointing that was upon him to bring deliverance to the captives was because he spent time in communication with God on a daily basis, even if it's just, look, if you remember, if you go throughout a day and you remember, man, I'm not praying today, just stop for five minutes, go somewhere and pray. If it's not, all I'm saying is just pray. If you forget, you let it go, you forget a day, just stop, take five minutes, sit down, pray. Have some sort of daily prayer time. And you know, the, Lord, the Lord's calling you far more than that, but we're just asking for, we're just asking for a little bit. We're just asking to go in that direction with God. Thirdly, is fasting, a lifestyle of fasting. Develop a lifestyle of fasting. And what I mean by this is, you know, a lot of you all, you've signed up for just, just praying and fasting for, for one day out of the month. And you know what? That's a good start. But when we talk about fasting, we're also just talking about any kind of denial. What is God calling you to set, a t- set aside that you've been wasting your time on, you've been burning dead hours, that you just need to set aside for a moment? And, it's, and, and fasting is not to be something that's done when the church calls you to it want to integrate it into your life as a lifestyle. Jesus said, when I depart, my disciples will fast. Are you his disciple? Now, I'm not saying you got to go on a 21-day fast or anything like that, but I'm saying you learn to live a life of self-denial for the purpose of seeking God's face. Fourthly is, you want to be in fellowship with those who fuel your passion for Jesus. You say, well, I ain't really got nobody. Send me a daggone text. Call me on the phone. Sometimes, I, I love it. Look, people sometimes they ask me questions, they send me messages, and they say, I hate to bother you. I love being bothered if it's about the Lord. Bother me. We'll have a conversation about it. I'll do my best to fuel your passion if you'll try to fuel mine. Get in a relationship. Get in a small group if you've not been in one whenever we start to launch it. Be in fellowship. And lastly, seek God for a vision and write it down. Don't just don't go into this year with no with no goal in mind whatsoever. Don't go into this year just going through the motions again, just going around in the same circle. Begin to say, God, what would you have me to do this year? What would you have me to seek you for? What kind of breakthrough can I see in my own life or in the lives of people around me? Seek God for a vision. What does he want to see happen in your life? And write that down and begin to put intentional steps down so that you can reach that goal. I wrote something in my notebook last night. I said, Lord, I'm going to do this and I got a checklist. And every month I'm going to go through my checklist. I'm going to hold myself accountable to this thing of things that I, that I want to do, that I want to see happen. But write that vision down. The scripture says that when you get that vision, to write it down and make it plain so that you can run with it. Amen? Let's stand to our feet.